Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Be Be seated. The Apostle Paul moves from, you remember last time we looked at that confession of faith, where it's a hymn or it's uh, a song, something along those lines. He moves from that sort of uh, peak to a stern warning Uh, from a confession of Jesus' incarnation and resurrection and ascension. He turns to a message about some who will fall away from the faith. Um, With that first word, but, it is contrasting with what proceeds. From church order and authority and confession, we now learn of what leads to disorder and conflicts with authority and ultimately apostasy from the faith. First, Paul says that the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Um, When did the Spirit explicitly say that? Um, Well, notice that the present tense is used. The Spirit explicitly says. Uh, The Spirit is speaking this presently. Uh, How? By the Word. Later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, 5.18, we have a parallel statement. The scripture says, the Holy Spirit says, the scripture says, that which is inspired by the Spirit, the Word of God speaks, right? Very simple point here. The Word of God speaks. Um, There's a constant present authority of the Word of God as expressed by the Apostle Peter in his second letter. He says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Those scriptures continue to speak, and it, it's, it is in a very real way the Spirit speaking to us today and to every age. It's amazing Spirit speaks today. So where does the Spirit, again, explicitly say that in Later times, some will fall away from the faith. Jesus, in in a passage that, or in a a moment that we call his Olivet Discourse, 
answers the question from the disciples. He, they ask this question, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And then Jesus says, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will, hear, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away. And will betray one another and hate one another. In Mark 13, Jesus says, And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, here he, uh, he is there, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. In, in, I think these words of Jesus are what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he says the Spirit says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. And so before I deal with what it means to fall away from the faith, I should, you know, what, is, what does the Apostle mean by later times? Um, did, the, did the people that Paul was writing to consider themselves in later times or was was that a future time to come? It's clear that those who received um, his letter would have understood that they were living in later times. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, preaching in Jerusalem after the giving of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, says, says this, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Clearly, they see themselves as at the end of some sort of age, the later times. And notice in our passage in 1 Timothy 4, how Paul goes on to explain a present circumstance that is occurring in the church in Ephesus. Timothy um, is told to point out these things to the brethren. Clearly, this is a present situation for that church. Regardless, the church of this time and the early church viewed themselves as being at the end of an age in the later times. Now, what does Paul mean when he speaks of a falling away from the faith. Whatever we say about that, it cannot contradict what Jesus says about his elect. It cannot contradict what Jesus says about his elect. And Jesus says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It cannot contradict that. 
The elect, the called ones, are ultimately glorified by the grace of God. Um, That's why I believe in that Mark passage I read previously, it says, if possible, before it says the elect. Right? Um, So again, what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says some will fall away from the faith? I think he has in mind this sort of category. There are some who show forth some sort of faith, right? They associate with the church for a time or for a long time. They show interest in the things of God. They have a taste of the Spirit's work. They get involved in the works of the church, right? And um, because they find them beneficial or gratifying on some level. But is all on a certain level, faked. It's faked. Um, They have higher and more important interests than, you know, or that compete with their faith in Jesus Christ. And the true quality of that faith is eventually eventually revealed in this life. Um, When pressure comes to someone who has a faith that is fake, When real pressure comes, they blow out of the faith. They dump God for their own personal truth. Remember the four types of soil upon which the seed of the word of God falls, right? Here's Jesus' explanation of that. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now, with two of those persons, the word of God has an effect, doesn't it? But does not lead to lasting fruit. Um... But from all outward appearances, that person has faith. And is in faith, right? From all outward appearances, that person is, seems to be faithful. The one man receives the word with joy, but affliction and persecution comes along because of the word, right? And he immediately blows out. He immediately falls away, forsakes any sort of confession that he had. And goes away. With the third man, he hears the word. But worry comes along. And the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word. But in both those cases, the word is heard and received. The word is heard and received, yet something comes along and makes that word unfruitful in that person's lives or that person's life. Their faith shown forth for some time, not because of the regenerative work of God in their heart, but because of their own human interest, dies. 
it dies. It, they fall away from the faith. They fall away from the faith when their cost-benefit analysis tips to the side of worldliness in the presence of affliction, in the presence of persecution, in the presence of worry or wealth. Those things come along and they, Jesus is no longer needed. And we think, and we think that affliction or persecution, worry and wealth, Think of those four things, affliction, persecution, worry, and money. We think that those have no such hold on us, do we? I mean, what is more real to you, your faith or your worry? What is more real to you, your faith or your worries? Your faith or your wealth, right? Your faith or your relationships, your faith, you know, when these things come along, when affliction and persecution, worry uh, come along, in many cases, the, the professing Christian's true identity gets revealed in dealing with those things. If persecution comes along and it's, it's costly to attend church, you know, to gather for the preached word, replace our situation with China's or with Iran's. Right When that comes along, who among us won't show up? Who won't show up? Um, if we are forced to make a decision between our career and our faith, who will choose career and leave the household of God? Right, That's the choice between money and Jesus. Who will fall away from the faith? If we are not thinking and pleading with God about such circumstances, you know, Today, in a country that is showing all the signs that the persecution of Christians is, is coming up, if, if we don't think about these questions, we're, we're delusional or lazy. We'll be unprepared. Um, this is precisely why the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy to preach and teach these things. The cost of faith is coming upon the Ephesian church. The cost of following Jesus Christ. And with that pressure, some will fall away. They'll consider the cost too great. The Apostle Paul is telling it straight so that some may be saved. So that some may do the work of a self-examination and determine whether they are in the faith. Right? His exhortation will be a means to the elect's repentance here. Others will not heed the Holy Spirit's expectations or exhortations and will fall away. Now, just exactly what kind of pressure is facing those who have faith in the Ephesian church? The ultimate cause, Paul writes, is this, is that some are paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. They're giving heed to and following something instead of the word of God. They are giving themselves to deceitful, lying spirits and the doctrines of wicked demons. The deceitful spirits are spirit beings, demons who deceive. Right? They do not give as they seem to promise. They lie. They do not give what they're whispering to you that they are giving you. And they do not teach what is according to God's word. They, they're deceitful in their practice and they are deceitful in their teaching. They are filled with heteropraxy, 
right, and heterodoxy. So what kind of things fall into this category? Anything that is worshipped instead of God Almighty leads a man to pay attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Anything that, that works against the worship of the one true living God is a man paying attention to the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. To the Corinthians, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. You remember that the Word of God says that. The Gentiles, are sa- their idols are sacrifices to demons. They sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Idolatry, worshiping something other than the creator, is serving demons. How do men and women today pay attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons? Well, again, it's very simple. Name anything that attempts to take glory away from God. Name anything that leads men to serve themselves and not the God above. Name the idols of our day and age. Evolution, sex, materialism, environmentalism, abortion, sports, education, liberalism, socialism, anarchy, biological transformationalism, right? Wealth. But what I want to get you to understand is that these are not simply innocuous sort of intellectual pursuits. They are all the centers of spiritual warfare with deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons claiming the minds of men and women. This is a spiritual battle for the souls of men. Paul again writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He does that, and think of all the intellectuals who preen themselves as the keepers of truth, who have been devoured by the devil. Think of the professors that propagate evil, right? Homosexual depravity, abortion as a right. You know, these are the ones we entrust our children to in college. They've been blinded and are deceived and controlled by deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Now again, you may think I'm overreacting here, attributing 
evolution and the sexual revolution and environmentalism and feminism to demons. But it's the Word of God. We mustn't be materialists in our thinking, discounting spiritual realities. This is, I think, a good method of the devil, right? Discounting spiritual realities. At least this is how how Lewis imagined it in his screw tape letters. Here's a portion of, of one of the chapters that gets at what I'm saying. Now, the screw tape letters is a, is a series of letters that Lewis imagined between a senior and a junior demon. Okay? And so they're, they're trying to figure out how to um, disturb a man who is now professing faith. And so he says, My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of this struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics, at least not yet. I have great hopes that we, will, we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is, in effect, a belief in us will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy. The life force, the worship of sex, in some aspects of a psychoanalysis, may here prove useful. If once we produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces, while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to rise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. Right? That is us. That is us thinking that demons are just something in red tights to be trivial about, to disregard. We are willing to concede all, that, all this ground, all this spiritual ground, just to intellectual differences. Right When Scripture makes it clear that it is wickedness and that it is evil that sets itself against the knowledge of God. Right? It's, it is not the, the Word of God versus science. It is not the Word of God versus environmentalism. It's not the Word of God versus abortion. It is not the Word of God versus hedonism. It is the Word of God against every kind of evil. Every kind of evil against every form of idolatry. Every bit, every molecule of wickedness in this world. It is... It is that God's it is God's word against deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
there is nothing that is innocuous. There is nothing that is just unimportant. And that we can accept without using spiritual discernment as Christians. Now, look at the means by which these deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons come to affect people. In verse 2, we read that these things are mediated by means of men. Men who become tools of wickedness. Men who are lying hypocrites, who have a, a seared conscience. The word here is, is, um, is one of those words only found in Scripture. Um, they are pseudologi. Pseudologoi. That's it. Pseudologoi. Speakers of falsehood. Speakers of lies. That is what they are. Hypocrites who speak lies. They may look good, but what they speak is dirty lies meant to deceive. And the reason these men do so is because their conscience is branded as with a, is, is seared as with a branding iron, right? The conscience is meant to be supple, right? The conscience is meant to be soft, alerting us to what is right and to what is wrong, right? Alerting us to when we have done wrong, but a seared conscience is hard. It is no longer supple. It is burnt to an unusable State. So these men who look good teach lies and do so because they have no conscience. They have no discernment that is informed by a supple conscience. Their conscience is made insensible. Nowhere is the seared conscience better described than the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. Think of this. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. A depraved mind given over to sin does what? Seeks to promote wickedness. The inactive conscience does not allow discernment. The inactive conscience does not allow even correction. Can we get this through our skulls, right? That the world is not simply... Some really evil people, some Christians, and a sea of neither here nor there. Either one has their mind set free from its bondage to sin by faith in Jesus Christ, or one is in bondage to sin and the evil one. The media is a perfect example of a whole class of people with a seared conscience. They have no discernment and cannot help but promote their wickedness. Just yesterday, I, I heard that the, the New York Times ran an op-ed piece praising communist China. But it's what they praise communist China about. They praise communist China and Mao for the blessings his regime was to women. I 
I mean, could there be a better example of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron? How many millions of women died? How many millions were starved to death? Um, But of course, let's bring it closer to home. Notice the two specific things these hypocritical, undiscerning liars are pushing. Forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods. Two very simple things. Forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods. Just pause a bit and let that sink in. Forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods. Your mind should be filling with a flood of our own culture's sins in those areas. Right? And more importantly, the church is longing to share the world's mood when it comes to those two things. Again, first, what was the situation in Ephesus? There's a kind of asceticism that thinks abstention from marriage and from foods leads to righteousness. There's a kind of asceticism that was being taught that this is how you gain righteousness. Um, But that is not what leads to righteousness unless your standard of righteousness is very low. Right? Those two things are pretty easy to keep. These, These men are teaching... They think that, that sex is unscriptural and unrighteous, um, which is incorrect and contrary to Scripture. They think eating, eating certain foods is unscriptural and unrighteous, which is incorrect and contrary to Scripture. These guys are teaching others. I mean, essentially, they're just saying sex is dirty and corn syrup spiritually degrades. That's what they're saying. Sex is dirty, corn syrup degrades. One of the most egregious examples of today's church doing something parallel to this is the mandate to disregard something that the Scripture teaches about marriage. The Scripture has a simple command, and it is this. Do you remember this? But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. Right? The scripture mandates that if a person burns with lust, he should get married. But there is a whole movement in the church today that denies that command of scripture. It is called the gay celibate Christian movement that forbids marriage. Their main teachers Uh, The main teachers in this movement say that their homosexual desires are neither sinful nor avoidable. And yet they recognize that scripture condemns homosexual intimacy. Right? So So they say they will remain celibate as long as they feel lust for the same sex. Um, Now the reformers... As I learned from a good book called When Fathers Ruled, it's by Osmond. They, the reformers, the church of, of our tradition has always taught that celibacy was both against scripture and against nature. Celibacy is an, an, an impossible ideal that they taught. Um, both the scriptures and basic common sense from the world taught that it was not something that led to faithfulness or to purity of life. Right? Scripture says that if someone burns, he should marry. The gay celibate Christian movement teaches contrary to that, 
both in making peace with deviant affections and desires and in concluding that burning with lust can be resolved in celibacy. But that is not the resolution that Scripture gives. Now, there's so much more that I could say about this. You're thinking, well, they have homosexual desires. So what? It's sinful desires. I have to put down sinful desires too. We all do. Um, you know, what, what, do the, what to do with homosexual desires, how, to, how in the world um, I can expect a gay man to be faithful in the marriage bed to a woman? Those are all questions that I'd be happy to address, but not now. In short, I'll say that the Holy Spirit is powerful and brings all of us through radical transformations as the old man dies and the new man lives. Okay, so, so this is how we, I mean, this is no different than we approach the drunkard. We approach the drunkard the same way we approach the pervert. Okay? So this is how we see asceticism functioning today. The gay celibate movement and its willingness to dispense with the solution to lust that God has ordained. In the end, they have determined that their homosexual identity is more precious to them than obedience or even the pursuit of obedience to God's commands. That that is what is precious to them. That is what they will maintain in the face of Scripture that is directly contrary to it. And now, what of food? No problems here, right? I mean, there, there are food legalisms on every corner today. You know, I have no problem with those with celiac disease being scrupulous for the sake of health about, you know, about gluten. That's a far cry from those who have no such disease demanding that gluten be removed from their house and the house of everybody in the church. Right? And, and if you, you question that, the infallible proof they have is something they found on the internet about the evils of gluten. And then... And then there are things like boasting in our righteousness based upon who picked our coffee beans. Right? Or how freely ranging those chickens were before they were slaughtered and chewed on and digested and sent to the sewer. Um, There's a whole lot of determining of righteousness based upon food today. Uh, so, so don't think that the Ephesians are dealing with old-timey sort of stuff here. We have the same issues today. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. And, I mean, to drive the point home just a little bit more, are you thankful that modern food technologies have saved millions of lives? Right? Um, corporate farming has allowed people to live and has, has been a, a great man of pictures uh, or a great picture of man's um, ruling and subduing the earth, of taking dominion. Or does that upset your principles? Right? And you wish that all people could come to understand the righteousness of subsistence farming and old methods. Um, that is a luxury of the decadent. That's a luxury of the decadent that would lead to the deaths of millions of God's image bearers. 
That's what it would lead to. Happy is the one who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Right? Look at... Oh, of course, look at corporate farming to make it more ethical. I'm all for that. But give thanks to God for what it has meant for God's image bearers. That it has saved lives. That it has made more life possible. That it has that it has impacted economies in glorious ways that allow people to live and worship God. Now, that is where Scripture goes, right? It says these, these foods are that which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of word of God, in prayer. That means your, your Big Mac is sanctified by means of the thanks you give when you pray for it. Pure and simple. That is what this passage means. Um, it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Wilson, Doug Wilson writes, the scriptures objectively and prayer subjectively sanctify all creaturely acts from marital lovemaking to eating bacon the morning after. And so it's my job as a minister of the Word of God to remind you to give thanks for lovemaking and bacon. Right? If these... Amen. Can I get an amen? Um, If these are things that God has created and are therefore good and they are sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer, then nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Um, There should be no food missionaries among Christians. There should not be food missionaries among Christians. Those who determine someone's righteousness by how organic they are. That should never happen. Um, There are missionaries of the gospel Right, who put everything in its proper place by receiving it with gratitude. Um, you are over to somebody's house, and they slap down a sandwich made of two pieces of Wonder Bread, two slices of bologna, and Miracle Whip. A heavy slathering of Miracle Whip. You're being tested, aren't you? You are being tested, aren't you? Now, of course, if you have allergies or a medical condition, you should say something and ask for a replacement. But if you don't, will you glorify God and give thanks for it and love your neighbor and eat it and rejoice? Do you want to please God or will you only live for your taste buds and your principles? Right? Do you want to honor God? Give thanks and eat. So, dear brothers and sisters, you have much gratitude to express to God for his good and kind provision. If you find yourself unable to give thanks, but for things that have met your very high standards, you are in danger of becoming obnoxious and a food and abstinence missionary, right? But stop that. Stop that and glorify God by the simple act of giving thanks to him. That is his will for you. It is our will in Christ Jesus to give thanks to God for all things. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your provision. We praise you for once again 
working us over by your word. Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us to have hearts that are filled more with gratitude. That we would not um, determine people's righteousness and utility by, by their asceticisms. Lord, I pray that we would merely obey your word, that we would know what is written there, that we would obey your word, and in this sense we would give thanks for what you have created and what is good. Father, I pray, I pray that we would come to understand that this world is, in, is, a, is a battle between, between you and your glory and the evil one and his demons, and that the minds of those who seem so smart, who seem so prudent, who seem so able to make money, are actually controlled and manipulated and undiscerning and, and under the power of the prince of the air. So, Father, I pray that we would have a discernment that helps us to... to uh, be confident in the knowledge that we have, that we are fighting against wickedness and that we would not be silent. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.